0: Um, Good afternoon. My name is John Lawrence. Uh, I'm a freelance uh, journalist based in Toronto. I write for a number of different publications, and I just recently published a story about the uh, hydroxychloroquine uh, saga in Maclean's magazine, and I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, about what's happened there, um, and some of the ethical questions around the publication of early results um, and very preliminary results from research that was done on the use of this drug. Um, So I'll just begin by talking a little bit about how I got this story Um, and with the following disclaimer. uh, I'm not a scientist. uh, I'm definitely not a physician. I'm not an ethicist. I'm just a journalist. And so I initially heard about this because the CEO of a small Canadian pharmaceutical uh, manufacturer named Mint Pharmaceuticals called me up and said that he's got this weird story that he wanted to share. Um, And basically, he this is a company that is based in Mississauga. Um, they're about 16 years old. Um, and they've made um, they've built a business around taking on um, uh, the distribution of somewhat scarce generic drugs. And about six years ago they took on um, hydroxychloroquine, and essentially we're distributing it to, People who were um, traveling abroad to areas where there's malaria, because it's a malaria drug, and also to uh, patients who have, or you know, to physicians and hospitals who are treating patients with lupus and rheumatoid arthritis. And like a number of drugs, um, uh, this is hydroxy- hydroxychloroquine was developed for one purpose, but has a sec- has a secondary therapeutic purpose. Um, and the way that physicians discovered that it was useful for lupus and rheumatoid arthritis is that the subset of people who were prescribed hydroxychloroquine for malaria or to prevent malaria, you know, found that their symptoms of these autoimmune conditions were easing. So, and you know, there are other examples of this, thalidomide, very notorious drug to ease, um, you know, pregnancy uh, uh, nausea in the, uh, in the 1950s. Um, and subsequently has found it perfectly safe use as a cancer treatment. Anyway, so the this, the the CEO of this company, Javier Singh, called me up and said that he has this weird story. And the story goes like this. So he, um, so in March, he received two very large orders for hydroxychloroquine from uh, a hospital wholesale supply group. And this is a company that basically buys pharmaceuticals and distributes them to large hospitals across Ontario. And the orders were so large that they were equivalent in size to all of the, um, the orders that he'd filled for all of Canada in um, 2019. Now, he his firm has about 60% of the hydroxychloroquine market. The other two players are Apotex um, and Sanofi Avanti, Avantis. Um, There's, you know, a small number of companies that supply this market, um, partly because the price of the drug has been dropping in the last few years. And so some of the bigger players are pulling out because it's not profitable. So he was wondering what's going on. Why is there suddenly this surge of orders and not distributed, but very narrowly based? at the same time, there were other signals that something weird was happening with this drug. So there were, so I interviewed for the story um, a rheumatologist um, in Oakville, and she was hearing from her patients that um, they were having a lot of trouble refilling their prescriptions. And these are people with lupus and rheumatoid arthritis. They're on chronic um, you know, on you know, they, they have these conditions are chronic, they're taking these pills every month, and they couldn't get them. And so this physician told me that she was you know, she had her administrative assistant scrambling around to find, um, you know, find supplies, calling wholesalers, calling hospitals to see what was going on. Um, So in the background, uh, this is all taking place in in March, we have this weird social media phenomenon, the latest kind of strangeness coming out of the Trump presidency that Donald Trump and, uh, you know, several of the Fox uh, News anchors are tweeting and talking a lot about Hydroxychloroquine is being this miracle cure um, for uh, for um, COVID-19 symptoms. And so the patients in the in the in this uh, doctor's practice are kind of the collateral damage of this social media phenomenon, where there's this huge surge of interest in a drug, and a lot of, you know, a lot of hospitals, a lot of um, pharmacies are buying up a lot of this drug. Um, worldwide and so my story is kind of peeling the onion and what you know how did you get how did we get to the point where um where a drug with an obviously difficult to pronounce name as you can see that i'm stumbling over it is suddenly uh, you know coming out of uh, the president's mouth it's in you know it's in news briefings that he's holding um, it's all over social media um, And so what I started to do was kind of peel the onion and look back at the origin of um, of how how does hydroxychloroquine become a sort of a potential cure for COVID. Uh, So it's known, um, and there's scientific literature on this that goes back a decade, that this particular drug has shown in labs um, the ability to uh, suppress viruses in lab conditions so not on human patients but it does have some property and the property is thought to be connected to zinc which is one of the active ingredients and so people who are interested physicians and scientists who are interested in um, infectious diseases and who have specialization in tropical diseases are kind of thinking about um, hydroxychloroquine as a potential um, as having potential for uh, the COVID virus and this idea begins to sort of circulate in the early part of uh, 2020 in February, and in particular in, in, um, in China. And this um, there's if you go back to um, uh, a very preliminary paper that was published in China in um, mid-February, there's evidence to show that um, Chinese physicians were using this drug on COVID patients um, and, uh, and so, a couple of researchers um, in China sort of gathered up some results of a very small study, um, 100 patients, and declared that the um, that it had definitely positive results. And so, I want to dwell on the study a little bit because it's um, because this is this is a document that kind of gets into the um, the bloodstream, if you pardon the pun, of the this information ecosystem that exists. That begins with scientific research, and that you know eventually includes social media and the mainstream media and all of these other kind of channels that, that exist today. So, the study was published in a um, in a Japanese journal called Bioscience Trends, and Bioscience Trends is owned by a company that has a number of um, of scientific journals. Um, it's uh, you know it's not a it's not a really well-known name. It's not distributed by some of the larger um, uh, uh, journal publica- uh, publishers like Elsevier. Uh, and this, um, this document came out, as I said, in mid-February, but the sequence of events that, um, that precedes it immediately, that precedes the publication of this very small study is notable. So on February 16th, the Chinese government um, has a briefing in which they declare that hydroxychloroquine is uh, a useful drug in treating um, COVID patients and basically says to physicians in China, go for it. Uh, On February 18th, the paper that I've been referring to is submitted uh, for publication in this bioscience trends journal. Um, It's submitted for publication and accepted on the same day. And this is two days after the Chinese government have kind of given their thumbs up. And on the next day, on February 19th, it's uploaded to uh, a non-paywalled site, um, which makes it accessible to anybody. Uh, and so, so in three days, you get this remarkably swift uh, movement of information uh, from, you know, from, you know, a government source onto the internet. And uh, there's no evidence of peer reviewing in the, um, that's taken place in the uh, you know, in the in this report, um, the report doesn't include you know kind of standard disclaimers um, that you see in other journal uh, publications. You know, uh, you know, a section talking about the weaknesses of the study um, uh, or you know other questions to raise. Uh, it's just put out there as being a very positive result. Uh, the the labeling on this report is also very important to note, um, and I just noted it here, um, the headline says um, breakthrough and the, um, and it's released under, uh, it's released uh, uh, sort of under a tagline that says advanced publication. And so essentially it's um, it's kind of getting to the front of the line, it's made available and it becomes part of the information ecosystem about COVID. Um, in, in the next couple of weeks, the, um, a French microbiologist who's kind of a renegade character. He's based in uh, Marseille, Marseille is, you know, is also poking around hydroxychloroquine. He's had, you know, experience in treating malaria and other tropical diseases. Um, You know, he's got done lots of work with, um, you know, with viruses and uh, different types of infections. And he's a real enthusiast for hydroxychloroquine. And he's also a believer in just kind of trying stuff. Um, And so he, publishes another small paper, which has um, a sample size of 26, um, and it makes reference to the Chinese paper um, in the footnotes. And like the Chinese paper, it's very enthusiastic about hydro- hydroxychloroquine. And like the Chinese paper, it's it's made available. Um, there's no paywall to access this document. It's just, it's now out on the internet. Um, so. When I was doing the story, I came across a uh, study that uh, the Journal of the American Association of Medicine um, uh, did after the whole hydroxychloroquine kind of melodrama blew up. And it looked at the um, internet searches of the phrase hydroxychloroquine um, and a few other words that suggested people were looking for it in pharmacies. And it's an amazing uh, chart and it's quite an interesting study because you can see that um, that there's this abrupt spike and the spike happens in two phases. The first phase is when Elon Musk, who's the, um, the head of Tesla, um, tweets out um, something about, the, uh, about these French and Chinese studies. And then there's a steep curve and it goes straight up and then Trump gets a hold of it and then the Fox News people get a hold of it. And suddenly there's this huge volume of searches taking place. And then just as abruptly as it goes up, it drops back off again, as there are news stories about uh, about people in, I think in uh, primarily in Africa who've obtained large number, you know, large quantities of uh, hydroxychloroquine and are self-administering and die um, in several cases. And this kind of makes the story subside temporarily. Um, so the question that I have and that um, I found very interesting in this, in this whole situation, is you know, is, are, what is the um, you know, how should we sort of approach information of this nature? Uh, so I'm a journalist, I work in a profession that's absolutely guilty of overhyping um preliminary scientific research data, especially when it comes to um diets, when it comes to medicine, um, you know. Uh, test drugs of different sorts uh, so there's a lot of reporting that goes on which raises people's expectations tells them that you know eggs are good on one day and they're not good on the next day uh, so so this is a problem that the media faces and it it's um, you know it's a it's a, it's an acknowledged problem but my question is whether there's a comparable question a comparable issue around making available uh, highly preliminary, um, research data. Uh, So I spoke to an ethicist who's connected to the Center for Ethics. And, uh, you know, we discussed this. um, So he had a look at the, you know, some of these very early studies. And he's a scientist, he's a neurologist. uh, And he said, well, you know, to me, it's very legible uh, that these are preliminary studies. And there's, there's nomenclature to indicate that, um, you know, that it's it, you know, it's not a kind of a gold standard. Um, you know, most people understand that these are very small sample sizes that uh, and so so on their face, the studies you know are probably you know doing what they're supposed to be doing, but they are uh, being made available. Um, one of the um, uh, one of the issues that this uh, this incident has reminded me of was took place about fifteen or sixteen years ago, when there were there were um, there were a fair number of scandals involving some of the leading um, you know uh, scientific medical journals in the United States, including the New England Journal of Medicine, and it had to do with the disclosure of conflicts of interest. And so there were senior editors of those publications that you know had to resign, um, you know, because it, it was discovered that drug companies were paying for research that. Was being presented as impartial, and now we have a system where, um, you know, where this kind of disclosure is quite routine, and so the information is available to readers about whether or not, you know, a pharmaceutical company participated in the funding of a research uh, project or clinical trial, and then, you know, and then the reader can make a decision about how much credibility they're going to give that study. Um, I don't think that there's any similar kind of um, a system in place for very preliminary, uh, very preliminary research, uh, and you know it's not hard to see that this is an almost impossible um, uh, thing to expect because we have like a and a we have a huge amount of scientific research available. Uh, you know, there's you know you know people people post their you know their. Uh, papers before they're accepted for publication. This has become a routine thing. There's the whole gray literature um, phenomenon, and so so it's it's very possible for information like this to get into the bloodstream of the global um, information ecosystem, and you know with with highly deleterious results because people did die as a result of the hype around hydroxychloroquine and you know, and it, it's still the subject of, you know, a lot of controversy now, which I'll, I'll get to in a moment. Um, so the, uh, so I think that it really, um, I think the, the attention then should swivel in the direction of the uh, regulatory authorities. And in North America, we had two very diff- starkly different responses. Health Canada was quite um, cautious around hydroxychloroquine. It did not Um, Authorized off-label use, for example, Um, it did allow um, anybody in a hospital being treated for COVID-19 to be enrolled automatically in any kind of clinical trial. Uh, But that's not specifically about hydroxychloroquine. Although there are a lot of clinical trials um, now underway to look at the safety and efficacy of hydroxychloroquine, the United States was a very different story, and the FDA, um, which is you know like a lot of American Um, federal agencies is subject to highly politicized decision-making these days um, uh, made a decision in March to allow doctors to prescribe um, hydroxychloroquine in combination with erythromycin and you know um, a few other uh, agents um, on an off-label basis and um, so there was a uh, it we there's, I'm going to skip to the end in a moment, but there's uh, there's evidence that this was a widespread pra- practice. Um, Could it have become a widespread practice in Canada? Well it seems clear that the these very large orders that uh, mint pharmaceuticals was seeing um, had may have had something to do with the fact that um, hospitals wanted to be ready for something. the clinical trials, um, Probably won't use up as much supply as was ordered, and so it seemed that there was a stockpile taking place, um, and that the um, you know, and that there was the that the hospital wholesalers and the hospital groups were thinking that they may they they may want to have this stuff on hand just in case. Um, so, how extensive was the physician use of hydroxychloroquine? So, this is a like many COVID stories, this is a very dynamic and fast-moving tale, and uh, so this more so my story went up um, online yesterday, and the news peg, which is the way we think about things in my business, was that Trump, um, in recent days, has been bragging that he's taking hydroxychloroquine as a prophylactic to prevent um, uh, COVID nineteen. Um, I have no idea how his physician got his head around. Prescribing that, but that's the way it is, or that's what Trump says he's doing. So this morning, um, the Lancet, very reputable major uh, medical journal, released one of the first large-scale studies of um, of the impact of hydroxychloroquine. Now, it's not a you know the gold standard uh, placebo-controlled, randomized con- uh, clinical trial, double-blind um, uh, uh, study. It is a It's an observational study of 15,000 COVID patients admitted to hospital in 671 hospitals around the world on six continents. So um, what's interesting about the study, and I'll tell you what the result is in a second, is that it shows just how extensive the off-label use of hydroxychloroquine has become in the last uh, couple of months. Um, Even though there is no, like really sharp and solid study showing that it performs better than a placebo under, you know, highly controlled conditions. Uh, The the findings of the Lancet study show that uh, patients, that patients who take it have an elevated risk of arrhythmia and mortality. um, And the, the, the the, the conclusion of this particular study is that it's probably not, a, it's probably shouldn't be part of the arsenal of tools used to contain and treat this drug. The um, last thing I'll say is that the New England Journal of Medicine a couple of weeks ago had a, um, a pretty compelling editorial, which I quote in the article, um, which says that um, it says basically that there will be a lot of death and suffering as a result of the, the, um, Uh, you know, the pandemic, and we know that already. Um, uh, But it says that the public's confidence in uh, the medical regulatory system should not be one of the, um, you know, one of the victims of this pandemic. And clearly, this is, um, clearly, this has already happened that, that the FDA uh, sort of put the, you know, put the cart before the horse, allowed a lot of off-label experimentation based on a handful of very small trials that, you know, the results of which got into circulation through um, social media and, you know, created an unnecessary uh, controversy. So I think that the challenge for, you know, for health regulators and the challenge for medical journals and for the, you know, for the companies that control access, you know, who own sort of families of medical journals is to ask, you know, at what point do we allow information to get into the, you know, get out onto the internet, um, you know, in ways that aren't kind of slowed down. So for example, in, you know, without paywalls or without other kind of um, access mechanisms. And I'd say that the hydroxychloroquine story um, should put that question, which is an ethical question in my mind, um, on the front burner. So I'll stop there. I'm happy to answer any questions. by email, Marcus will can provide my email and my articles online and I think is um, sort of there's a link in the accompanying on the on the page for this event. Thank you.